Good morning, church. Hey, we're so grateful that you're here at Stone Point. And uh, if you are here with us for the very first time, then you're like, what in the world? Uh, and so listen, I just want to invite you to go check out uh, the message from last week. Last week, we kicked off a series called Upside Down. And uh, we're going to continue that series today. And so if you're with us for the very first time, we're grateful that you've come. You are in the right place. Uh, because if I'm a loser, uh, then you can feel a whole lot better about yourself. And so uh, we are, uh, we, we are um, in this series, and the reason that we called it upside down is because of what Jesus does uh, in Matthew chapter 5 through 7 on uh, his teaching called the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Jesus has uh, got a multitude of people that have followed him, and he is teaching them. And it implies that uh, the multitude and the disciples are there, and he begins to walk through some of the things that would challenge uh, Jews and Greeks alike. But primarily, uh, he's, he's emphasizing in his teaching things that Jewish tradition would struggle with. Matter of fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, the famous sermon that Jesus preached, the best sermon ever, uh, Jesus would say something like this. He would say, hey, you've heard it said that thou shall not commit adultery. And then he would say, and if you have ever committed adultery, it means that you, uh, he goes, you, you may think that committing adultery is just something, you know, in your mind, but he goes, if you have ever looked lustfully at another woman, you've committed adultery. He would say, you've heard it said, uh, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And he says, but you should turn the other cheek uh, if somebody insults you or, or has something to do with you. Uh, and so he, he begins to challenge a lot of the things that we think. And so that's what he would, he would do. And last week we saw uh, that as he began this Sermon on the Mount, he began with some statements. Uh, these statements are oftentimes referred to as the Beatitudes. And these statements reflect some of the teaching that Jesus is using to prepare his audience. And one of the things that he said right out of the gate is he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the kingdom of God. And so what he was doing is, is he was saying, listen, when you can understand uh, who we are uh, and that we're broken and that we, in a sense, are sinners in need of God, he goes, then you can begin to understand your need for God. I think oftentimes we, we might even struggle with what he was trying to say. And so he, he says it this way, blessed are the poor in spirit. And he uses this word poor uh, as the word tokos, which um, literally means blessed are the beggarly, the ones that would come and they would beg and that they would plead for mercy. It's the ones who, in a sense, uh, you would look at and be maybe annoyed with. Uh, I don't know about you, but sometimes you're annoyed by people because of the way they approach you uh, in a beggarly state. And you can go, man, I wish those people would leave me alone. The point of the message last week is simply this. You and I are those people. We are not far from removed from being the beggarly sort that we try to avoid. And so we are those people. And so I was just declaring last week that when you understand who you are and your need for God, you can gladly declare that you're a loser. Okay, And so whether you're here on the Wills Point campus, you're joining us online, or you uh, are in Edgewood, can we just do something together? Okay, we're just going to, on one, two, three, we're just going to go, I'm a loser. Okay, here we go. One, two, three. Here we go. I'm a loser. Now, there's some of you who really struggle with that. And here's the deal. The reason you struggle with that is because of what Jesus says next. 
Jesus goes from there and he says something different. He goes, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the beggarly, the ones who they need someone, for they're the ones that will have the kingdom of God. And then he said something very profound, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. And this word mourn there is this, this Greek word that brings about um, a, a different emotion. Mer- matter of fact, it's the Greek word paratheo. And, and the, the word is uh, there to evoke emotion of the strongest kind. Matter of fact, we mourn over different things. Like there are some of you that you mourned today because uh, there wasn't a pig in the blanket outside, right? I mean, it was just donuts. Like, oh, uh, there were some of you mourned because they didn't have the right kind of creamer out there for you. And you're like, oh, I'm so frustrated by that. Uh, there are some of you that mourned because today you got your favorite shirt, you put it on, you were brushing your teeth, and in the mirror, you realize that there is something on your shirt that you love and you had to change. You're like, oh, frustrated. There is another sort of mourning and it evokes the strongest emotion. It's the one that you struggle to get out of bed for, uh, that you in a sense are in a dark place, a place of brokenness and despair. And that's the word that Jesus uses here. When he uses this word, um, that in a sense that you are uh, pentheo, uh, he, he says, hey, it, it, it's the strongest mourning and emotion that you could have. And it would revoke the emotion of if you lost somebody that you loved. Um, and matter of fact, that's how we oftentimes have come to view this text. We view this text, or blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And we think, oh, blessed are those who are going through a really difficult time, an affliction of sort. Blessed are those for they can find the comfort of God. Matter of fact, maybe somebody has written you a note before uh, and at the very uh, end of it, they've addressed the difficulty that you're in, the circumstance that you're facing, something, a particular hardship. And they might've even said, hey, blessed are you in your mourning for you'll find comfort from God. And what they've done there is they took this teaching that Jesus said and they thought, okay, Jesus is obviously saying that when we mourn, that he's there to comfort us. And they're using it in the sense of blessed are those who are struggling with death or a grievance or an affliction for, for Jesus is there. But if you've taken in light of what Jesus is teaching here, you'll know that that's not what Jesus meant. Jesus isn't talking about he'll bring comfort to the one um, who is struggling in death, although he will. But what he is speaking of here is a tie-in to the fact that you're a loser. Okay, so here's what he's saying. He goes, blessed are the poor in spirit, the ones who are sick. Matter of fact, last week, we, we showed you this parable, this teaching uh, that Jesus uh, gave uh, to a group of, uh, of people, the Pharisees that were asking uh, some of his followers, why is your master sitting around with tax collectors and sinners? Why is he eating with them? And then Jesus overheard them and he answered the question. And he said, it's not uh, the healthy that need a doctor, but it's the sick. And he goes, that's why I'm here. And so he goes, when you know that you're sick and that you're in need of a doctor, then you can find someone to bring you healing. And so he goes, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of God and blessed are those who mourn for they can be comforted. And the idea is blessed are those who know they're broken because they are the ones who can take advantage of the doctor. Now, let, let me, I'm gonna put something in your mind here, okay? You, you gotta be really sharp, paying attention, lean in with me. Can a doctor tell you that you're healthy? And the answer is no. 
A doctor cannot tell you that you're healthy. And you're like, well, they, I, I pay every year for a wellness check. <laughs> they, they gladly take my money every year and he tells me that I'm doing well. And even though you look like you're doing well, the deal is that your doctor cannot reveal the tumor that's growing uh, in your body. He can't see that. He can't reveal that. He can't tell you about that. Why? Because the doctor is here not for the healthy and not even to reveal your health, but to reveal that you're sick. Matter of fact, that's why we go to a doctor. I never go to doctors when I'm healthy, period. Why? Because I don't like doctor's offices. You understand what I'm talking about? I don't even go when I'm sick if I can prevent it. I have to be almost deathly ill to go to a doctor. But when I know that I'm sick, then finally I give in and I go, I obviously cannot get over this without a doctor. And I don't go in and say, hey, doc, can you reveal my health? I go, doc, can you do something about this ailment that I have, this sickness? And that's what Jesus is talking about. He goes, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the ones who know they're sick. Because when they know they're sick, then they'll actually reach out to the physician. When they reach out to the physician, guess what? They can find comfort. That's what he's talking about. Blessed are those who find comfort. And he uses this word mourning, that that word pentheo. When you're so sick and you realize who you are, then it evokes emotion of different kind. And here's what you know. You know that you in, in and of yourself cannot find health in and of yourself. You can't be restored. And so we're not talking physically, we're talking spiritually. And that's what Jesus is talking about. What Jesus says is, blessed are those who mourn, pentheo, who are at the very core of their being are being affected by who they are in their humanity. Like, think about it. You go, well, I, I, I don't know that I'm really that bad. I would never wear a shirt that says I'm a loser, okay? Um, I get it, okay? But here's what you need to know is that the scripture tells us that we are that bad. Matter of fact, the prophet Jeremiah would say in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse nine, he says, the heart is desperately sick, it's deceitful. Who can understand it? The idea is that in us, there's really nothing good. Paul would say it this way. Paul says in, uh, in uh, Romans chapter seven, verse 18, he goes, in me, he goes, that is in me. He goes, I know there's nothing good that lives in me apart from Christ. The idea is, is that in our humanity, in our flesh, we are sinners separated from a holy God. And we think, oh, hey, I can, in a sense, maybe work to God. Maybe I can be religious enough, or maybe I can go to church enough, or maybe I can do enough good things, and maybe somehow I'll get there. But here's the deal. You don't get healthy by doing things you get healthy by meeting the doctor. And that's what he, he said, I've come for. And so you might go, okay, if, if this means to mourn over, in a sense, who I am, that I'm a wretched sinner, that I'm a loser of sorts, then how do I effectively mourn? How do I know that I'm mourning? How do I know? Because the goal is, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be, say it with me, Okay, hang with me. Here we go. Okay, for they shall be what? Comforted. The goal is comfort. We go, well, of course I want comfort. Well, he goes, but blessed are those who mourn. They're the ones who get comfort. The blessed are the sick. Blessed are the ones who know they're sick for they can find comfort, the healing. And so you might ask yourself, well, how in the world do I know? And I'll just tell you, in order for you to understand who God is and the comfort that he gives you, 
you have to first understand who you are, who you are, that you literally are a vile, nasty sinner. And you're like, no, 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 no. I'm really struggling with that. Listen, you may struggle with that, but it doesn't reveal the fact that the Bible says that, that the Bible clearly makes a very clear case for why we're sinners, that we're broken, that we're poor in spirit, that we need God. But the, the challenge is the reason we struggle with that is because we think that we're not one of those people. So in 2004, I was teaching a history class and um, yeah, you, can't you tell I'm a history scholar? Yeah, uh, and so I'm teaching this class and I'm teaching about this culture in India. And in India, uh, in the day, there was a caste system. Now, although law says that there's no longer really a caste system in India, there still is, and it's still in the very low levels of their society. But back in the day, there was a caste system and the very top, you would have the, the Brahmins and at the very uh, bottom, you would have this class called called the untouchables. There were five class systems. The very top would be those that are the elitist. Uh, typically, it would be uh, people in royalty or nobility and, and particularly even the priesthood at the very bottom. Uh, and these untouchables would be the people that you didn't want to be around. And these people that you didn't want to be around could even oftentimes face consequences, not if they touched you, but even if their shadow was cast over you. So if they got close enough that their shadow touched you, then they were, in a sense, thrown out to the side. They were the lowest class. The only job that they might could have would be, in a sense, taking out um, trash or sewerly, uh, sewer uh, disposal or something like that. And so what you had was in this class system, you had royalty, nobility, and then from there you had commonplace and people all the way down to the very point was the peasant. And see, in our class system, what we think is, is, oh, okay, there's a difference between us who are nobility and those who are untouchable. I mean, there's us, and then there's those people. What the Bible says, though, is this, is that there is not us and those people, there is just us. And it doesn't matter if you are a, a Brahmin or a Sutra or, a, or a, an untouchable. It doesn't matter where you land in this caste system in society because at the end of the day, society is not the judge, God is. And God says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God says, not only have we all sinned, but we are all even in a sense, we are prone to the judgment of sin. And you go, so you're telling me that it doesn't matter who I am in society, that God doesn't see society in classes and, and caste systems, what God just sees is a human condition. And the answer is absolutely. You know what the human condition is, is this, is that you're a loser. That we are, we are wretched, vile, wicked sinners. In our humanity, we're depraved without God. And you go, I can't believe that you would say that about me. I didn't. The Bible did. Paul even says this to the church of Rome. I, I want you to see what he does. He, he, in Romans chapter three, he, he writes this incredible book and, and, and just packed full of theology. But in, if you're gonna eventually learn theology about the Bible, you gotta land that before you get theology, you really gotta understand depravity. And here's what Paul says. He, he's having a, a, a conversation. He goes, hey, um, is there a difference between Jews and and Gentiles, the Gentiles are sinners, you know, kind of the, they're, they're kind of the Samaritan, the, the, the mutt, so, so to say. And then you've got this elite class system, which is the Jew, God's people. And he goes, is there a difference between the two? And then Paul lands on a conclusion and he, he unpacks that conclusion in uh, Romans chapter three, starting in verse nine. And, and he says this, hey, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. 
For we have already charged that all both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. Because there's not, there's not a difference between Jew and Greek, barbarian, free. There's not a difference between, you know, male or female. He goes, at the end of the day, we are all broken. There's no one righteous. Remember what Jesus says? He goes, hey, I didn't come to reveal that you're healthy. I came to reveal that you're sick because then there's no one that's righteous. And then look what he says. He goes, no one understands. No one seeks God for all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. Paul calls them worthless. And he goes, no one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of the asp is, under their, is uh, under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And in their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. What he says is, is this. He goes, listen, at the end of the day, he goes, we are broken people there's nothing good about us. He goes from top to bottom. You see what he does? He takes you from the top to bottom. He goes, human condition from the very mind to the feet is there's nothing good about us. And he even says there, he goes, we don't even seek out God. There's no one that seeks out God. And what he does there is he makes a very theological principle that many of us have struggled with over the years. Because what he is saying is you didn't wake up one day and just go, you know what? I think I need God now. Because in your humanity, you don't do that. He goes, in your sin and your wretched state, you don't decide one day that I need God. Matter of fact, you remember what Jesus said in Matthew 23? He says something about this class of people who think they're above everyone else. They're called the Pharisee or the Sadducee. And he says, you are like a whitewashed tomb. And he says, you look great on the outside, but on the inside, you're like dead men's bones. You know what Jesus does there? He goes to everybody else in our society. They look at you and they think you're healthy. They think you're doing good. They look at your external acts and all the things that you do. They look at your zealousness for God. And they would say, you know what? They're the ones who worship. I wish I could be like them. And he goes, as everybody else wishes they could be like you, he goes, I've noticed something. You look really good on the outside, but on the inside, you're dead. Do you understand what the doctor just did there? He goes, you think you're healthy, but I'm telling you that you're sick. And Jesus isn't just telling that to this Pharisee. Jesus is telling that to anybody. Anybody that is apart from God is sick. And we think, okay, if I'm sick, then how do I get well? And here's what we do. Catch this. We think in order to get well, I got to go to the hospital. Hold on, catch that. You don't understand what I'm saying? You go, I got to go to the hospital. Can the hospital make one well? Can the hospital, I know it's really tough, especially in Edgewood. You are struggling with this question. Like, what do you mean there? Can the hospital make you well? No. Going to church doesn't make you well. Being with a handful of other people don't make you well. That's not what makes you well. What makes you well? The physician. See, the struggle right now in our church age is we think if I do a few things, I'll get well. Hey, if I go to church, if I give this, if I take care of this person, if I do this good deed, and at the end of the day, here's what God and the gospel are saying. No, you don't have your life together and you cannot work your way to God, but God being rich in mercy has worked his way down to us. And so he's saying this, no matter what you've done, 
no matter where you are and no matter where you've come from, God is willing to receive you as he works down to you instead of you trying to work your way up to him. He goes, at the end of the day, we can't work our way up to God. And you go, okay, so I get it. I'm a peasant. I'm a sinner. I'm a wretched, filthy man. The Bible clearly reveals that. Then what's next? And and here's the deal. Um, It's understanding not that you're simply a sinner, but what Jesus is doing, he's taking it further. And he's saying, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who are grieved so it's one thing to know that you're a sinner. And I think that's probably nothing that's new to you. I mean, you're, you're not shocked that I just said, hey, you sin. But what is shocking is the number of people that are never moved by their sin. That you're never really grieved by it, that you never really wrestle with it, that it never evokes emotion in you. And that's what he's talking about. He's going, when's the last time that you realize, not that you are in need of God, but when's the last time that you were deeply troubled by the sin you're involved in right now? When's the last time that you looked up and you knew that what you were doing in this moment, in this time, what's troubling you on the inside of your heart, the very thing the doctor says makes you sick, when's the last time that that evoked will and emotion within your soul? That's what he's saying. Matter of fact, um, Paul would write to the church of Corinth and, and uh, church of Corinth was a little bit jacked up, okay? Uh, and you may oftentimes wonder, is our church really that unhealthy? And the answer is absolutely it is. You're like, I don't like church because there's a bunch of problems in the church. It always has been. Matter of fact, uh, if you understand the New Testament, here's what you need to understand. Paul planted lots of churches that had lots of problems. And then he wrote a letter to the church to correct all their problems. <laughs> understand? That's what he did. So the, the, the first letter was to Corinth and going, hey, dude, uh, your church is jacked up. There's a bunch of messed up people. You're doing lots of things that you used to would do. Don't do those any things anymore. Here's the adjustments you should make. And by the way, let me know when you've made those adjustments. That's what's happening. That's what he's doing. The whole New Testament is about messed up churches that were planted by a guy named Paul. And then all of a sudden we get to America and we decide, oh, maybe the church shouldn't be messed up. No, the church is messed up. Why? Because we are a hospital for sinners so they can meet the great physician. Understand? It's not a museum. It's okay if our kids run in a hospital. It's not okay if they run in a museum, right? Right? It's a hospital for sinners. We're sick, we're wretched. Paul goes, hey, the church in Corinth is wretched too. Matter of fact, he addresses them and it tells us that they are confronted by some of the actions that they have. And as they are confronted, they do, uh, they do uh, just a, a reverse. They, in a sense, uh, they change course. They do a roundabout. And when they do, they begin to see some health and vitality and God begins to use it. But Paul records that in, in the second letter that he writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, um, he tells them what he has seen and heard. And I want you to catch it. Look at verse 8 through 10. He goes, for if I made you grieve with my letter, so he goes, if I made you sad with my letter, or I upset you, or I offended you, he goes, I don't regret it, though I did regret it. He goes, I don't regret telling you the truth, although it was hard. Got me? He goes, that, that was tough for me. For I see that the letter did grieve you, though only for a while. He goes, I know you wrestled with the letter. I know that what I had to tell you and what was happening in the Corinthian church 
caught you by surprise and it probably offended you and it probably upset you. But then in verse nine, he says, but as it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into what? Say it with me, repenting. For you felt godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces only death. What he said is, is this, he goes, I told you the truth. And he said, and you were moved, you mourned over your sin problem. And when you mourned over it, it, that godly grief, that sorrow that Paul's talking about, he goes, it led you to take a next step. And that next step was repentance. And he says, and when you repented, he says, you found comfort. When you repented, when you did it a roundabout, when you turned about to the 180, opposite of where you were going, because you were lovingly and gently corrected, even though it made you mad at first, he said you did an about face. And when you did an about face, he goes, you found healing and comfort. Why? Because it led you to repentance. You see the picture there? You go, well, is that kind of a new concept? The answer is no, it's not a new concept. It's all throughout your Bible. Isaiah says it this way in Isaiah chapter six, verse five. You might remember something similar. He goes, woe is me for I'm undone. And he says, because I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of people that are unclean lips. That's what Isaiah said. Um, Jeremiah, he wept in Jeremiah chapter nine over the sins of all of his people. Paul, he says it this way to his buddy Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. He goes, I am the chief of sinners. I am above all sinners. He says it the same way as I mentioned earlier in Romans chapter 7, verse 18. He goes, there's nothing good in me apart from Christ. That's the common theme. Well, you may go, anybody else say that? And the answer is yes. You remember David? David, uh, he had a pretty big blunder in his life as king. He went and, and uh, instead of going off to war where every other king would have been, where he should have been, he decided that he was going to stay at home. When he stayed at home, he decided he was going to look over his palace, see this beautiful woman in the bath, and then summon her up. He um, has a consummation of a relationship with her, ultimately conceive a child, uh, and the child dies, and, and David is in agony. And finally, one of his friends comes and he goes, David, the reason that the child died and the reason that you are where you are is because you've sinned against God. And finally, he's moved to repentance over his sin. And in Psalm 51, I'm so grateful that it's in our Bible, we see the recorded a work of David when he struggles with his conviction. When finally the godly sorrow catches up with him. Why? Because a friend pointed it out to him. He begins to repent. And look what it says in uh, day, uh, Psalm chapter 51, verses seven through 12. It just says this, catch it. It says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me, I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. And he says, create in me a, a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and hold me with a willing spirit. David goes, God, I know I messed up. God, don't cast me out from your presence. God, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I need a great physician. God, would you remind me? And then he says something, a key phrase of the joy of my salvation. No, that's not what he said. God, would you remind me of the joy of your salvation? 
The reason he didn't say, hey, remind me of the joy of my salvation is because there was nothing that David could do to get back into right fellowship with God. It was all that God could do to make him in right fellowship with himself. And so God goes, yes, I would gladly create in you a clean heart, a steadfast spirit. Absolutely, I would love to blot out your iniquities. I would love to be in fellowship with you. How do you, how do you receive comfort from God? You realize you're a sinner and then you grieve over your sin and the sins of others. Think about it real quickly. Like when's the last time, honestly, that you were like, yeah, I was really troubled by my sin. I'm not talking about the last time that you were praying a prayer and you're like, God, hey, forgive us of our sins today. That happens all the time. I'm asking the last time that you were deeply grieved over the sin in your life or in your kids' lives or in the the life of our church. When's the last time that you begged and pleaded with God because of the unhealth of of the church in America, the lack of understanding in our culture. When's the last time that you were grieved that evoked in you the deepest sense of sincere agony for your sibling that has gone astray, for your dad who clearly doesn't get the gospel? When's the last time that it moved you? That's the idea. And so when you begin to see who you are, you should be deeply moved by your sin. And then when you're deeply moved by your sin, it brings you to the most significant thing, and that is comfort. And the word comfort there is the word parakleo. It's the same word that Jesus would use when he says, hey, it's best I go away, John 14, and I send a more suitable helper for you, the comforter, parakleo. It's the idea of the one who would be with us, who would encourage us, who would not leave us nor forsake us. You remember the words of Jesus, the writer of Hebrew records, hey, I will never leave nor forsake you. You remember the words that you would see throughout your Bible, hey, cast all your cares upon me when you're weary, when you're heavy laden, I will give you rest. That's what he's talking about. He goes, when you come to the end of your rope, when you realize that you're nothing, and you come to the point of realizing you're nothing, you mourn over that, and you drop to your knees as a beggar. You're poor in spirit. He says, when you mourn over that, when you weep over your beggarly state, he goes, now you'll find comfort. And Paul writes to the church of Corinth, and and he tells us about the God of all comfort. And listen, I, can I just confess to you that I'm a loser, okay? Um, I just got this. I have used this text so many times um, in 2 Corinthians chapter one. Uh, And you've probably heard me use it. And and every time I've used it, I've used it within context and it makes sense and it it is true. But I, I think, I think I've wrestled this week in a way that I never have over this text. And I want you to see what Paul writes uh, to the church of Corinth. And uh, I want you to see what he says about the God of all comfort. And uh, he he simply just says this um, to a people who are deeply troubled, um, wherever it is, that's somewhere in here. Maybe, I don't know. Told y'all I'm a loser. Let me just read it. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it says, the father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction. And then look what it says, so that we may be able to comfort others. That's the goal, right? Who are also in any affliction with the comfort that we ourselves have received from God. And you look at that and you go, absolutely, that makes so total sense. 
When you look at your life and you go, I've experienced deep mourning over a death of someone I love. And, and because of that, I can re- receive comfort from God. He's given me comfort and I'm helping others. There's some of you that you're involved in our regeneration ministry. And the reason that you're in it is because God freed you from addiction and things that have le- like just in a sense evaded your life and have kept you tied down for a long time. But as you begin to wrestle with your sin, you begin to, to give that up. God has comforted you. He's freed you of that. And you go, now I serve in regeneration because I want to comfort others. The very first time they walk into the door, I want them to know that there's healing for them too. And absolutely, when you read that, you go, yes, it's a ministry of reconciliation. I receive comfort from God. I get to give comfort from God. And you can think of all your circumstances, all your hardships, everything that you've done. And that is absolutely true. You've been comforted by God. He's helped you. Now you should help other people. And I think that's true. But I don't think that's what Paul meant. I think he wants us to know that our greatest affliction is not the death of a loved one. The greatest affliction is not the drugs that we've been on. It's not the addiction we're seeking to overcome. The greatest affliction, catch this, is the very thing that caused all the consequence we just talked about. The reason that you have experienced death of a loved one the reason that you have had to work through addictions and trials is because of the greatest affliction mankind's ever known, and that's sin. And he goes, if if we know God, then he goes, he can, what? Comfort us in all of our affliction. Our greatest affliction is our sin problem. And when we know that there is comfort, paracleo, encouragement, hope, because of the affliction we're in, guess what? We can turn about and we can help others through their affliction. See, the gospel is not about having all the answers before you share your faith. The gospel is about 1 Peter 3.15, being prepared to give an answer to the hope that you have in Christ. What is the greatest hope I have? The greatest hope I have is this, that while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me, Romans 5.8. That even though I'm a loser, that in Christ, I become a winner. That I don't work my way to God, but he works his way down to me. To, to what? Bring comfort to bring solace, to bring hope, to bring peace that passes all understanding. Do you understand what he's talking about there? It's a bigger theme. The theme is, is that even though you're a wretched sinner, there is hope for you. Why? Because there is a righteous, just judge who comforts in all of our affliction. When you've been forgiven of much, what do you do? You forgive. Hey, Jesus says, hey, you'll know, they'll, they'll know that you're my disciple by the way that you love others. John says in 1 John chapter four, he goes, love others because Christ has first loved us. Can I, can I help you understand something real quickly as I close? You will never love well until you realize how well you've been loved. You will never be able to be like Jesus until you know what Jesus has done for you. I've always wondered, why are there so many mean people, so many opinionated people in the church? It's because there's so many people filled in the hospital that have not met the physician. And if you don't get health from the physician, you can't understand what it's like to receive health and give health. All you are is bitter. Why? Because you've not understand your deep need of God because of your depravity. Our depravity makes us not only lovable, but it helps us to love. If you received nothing, you have nothing to give away. 
See, here's the deal. Is, uh, the only way we understand that is we understand what Jesus has done. So Jesus is loving, right? You're like, oh, yeah, he's loving. Yeah, he loves me no matter what you do. Yeah, no, no. Here's what you need to understand about God. God is both loving and just. He's not just a God of love. You've been told he's just a God of love. Hey, just pray and he, he'll love you. No, that's not God. You, you, you've missed a, a really important and very pitiful part of your Bible. God is a, he's a God of love and justice. Let me explain it this way. Um, any, any of you that you would just identify with me, particularly the Edgewood campus, okay? I'm, I'm gonna ask for audience participation and I'm gonna wrap this bad boy up. Okay, you ready? Uh, anybody that, like when, when you were a teenager, you were, you were can, can I just use the word, you had some idiosyncrasies that would make you an idiot. Anybody in here? Yes, can I get an amen? I was one of those, okay? Um, and here's the deal. I know that right next to you wanted to raise somebody's head because you're like, I know you were an idiot, okay? Uh, I get that, okay? And, and so here's the deal. In this series, Upside Down Thinking, I know that it's not okay for pastors um, to call people losers and for us to be idiots. But can I just tell you that in this series, anytime that you call me a loser, it's I'm gonna give you a high five. And if you call me an idiot, then I'm gonna go, hey, dude, you're so right, okay? It's permissible. Got me? I also think, in the words of Paul, um, that it might be beneficial, okay? And so, great, encourage one another. So I was an idiot. I was an idiot, okay? Uh, Matter of fact, I don't know if, I'm sure there's multitude of opinions that's going on in our country related to um, judiciary processes and judges and all that. Um, I can just tell you this, I don't know all the answers. I can tell you this. You would not let me be the pastor if you knew what I did when I was 16, 17, 18 years old because I was an idiot. Understand? And you could probably relate. Um, I, was, I was an idiot. Um, I was a sinner. Uh, I did foolish things that I would hope were never brought back in my face. Um, some that were illegal, um, some that didn't please God, um, many of which uh, I hid for years and suppressed. Um, but here's the deal. Uh, on one particular night, let's just say that I got caught. And uh, I got caught with a group of friends. And the next morning, I had to be in front of a judge. And I'm in front of a judge. And I, I'm wrestling with a few different things. And, and let's just say the reason I'm wrestling with this is because the judge is also my father. And so you've got the judge and here's what you're doing. At first, you're like, you have some comfort and solace because you're like, hey, I am the judge's son. And that brings you some comfort, right? Uh, in some ways, it might make you a little bit arrogant. And the reason why is because you're like, I know my dad can what? Help me. Understand what I'm saying? Um, then uh, you, you begin to think through this and you wrestle with this. And then the next morning, they're bringing you in front of the judge. And as you walk into the courthouse, there's something that's deep-seated in you that evokes another emotion, a emotion that brings tears to your eyes. And here's why, because you know that even though your dad loves you and can potentially get you off, you also know that your dad is a fair man and that one of the reasons he has held his office and position so long as a judge is because he is just. And so then you, you begin to quiver a little bit. And the reason why is because you're like, I don't know what he's going to do. Is he going to bring justice to me? Because he always brings justice. He does not let people go, even though he's fair, he's just. And yet there's another side of you and you're like, no, he's loving. He's going to love me. And he's going to just take care of this for me. 
and you're wondering how this is gonna swing. And they finally bring you into the courtroom. They stand before you and you have now seen your dad in a whole new way. And what he does is he looks at you and you're wondering, is he gonna ask me a series of questions and then let me off the hook? And then he asks, he says, calls you by your full name. And he says, you are standing before the judge in this county because last night you were charged with this. It's a class C misdemeanor, um, class B misdemeanor. And he said, it's going to be a fine of up to $500 or three days in jail. Did you do this? You're like, oh no, he just twisted the thing on me. (laughs) And, And you know, you did it. And you know, there's other witnesses that would corroborate your story and you just have nothing to do other than say, I'm guilty. I'm guilty. And you drop to your knees and and, and again, you you just begin to plead like, dad, don't do this to me. Dad, don't do this to me. And he says, are you guilty? I'm guilty. And all of a sudden he bangs his gavel and he says, you have to pay a fine of $500 or three days in jail. And at that moment, as a teenager, you go, I don't have $500. I don't have it. In that moment, you're like, what? The, you mean the dad didn't do any? I mean, he, he sentenced him? And the answer is absolutely he sentenced him. Why? Because he's guilty. And a just judge judges guilt. After he bangs his gavel, he does something unprecedented. He takes off his robe and he says, the court is not adjourned, but I'll be right back. And he walks around to the defense seat where his son is on trial. And he says, son, you just saw me as judge, but now you need to see me as your dad who loves you. And he writes out a $500 check. And he says, you have been paid for in full. Your guilt has been punished. You are free to go. And he hugs him. He says, son, I love you. We'll have some more conversations but it's taken care of. See, there's a part of that that evokes emotion in you. And here's why it should is because that is the heavenly father we know. We stand guilty. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. But 2 Corinthians 5, 21, it says, he who knew no sin, Jesus, became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. What he did is he, He got off the seat of judgment. God got off the seat of judgment for a moment in his son that would go and write the check for us. That if we could simply recognize our sin, beg as a beggar, understanding that we miss the mark, that we're sinners, that we're vile and that we're wretched, but we would seek God with a broken heart that we had mourned over the sin that we have and the sins of others. He goes, you can find parakleo, comfort, synonymous with, forgiveness, hope, and a peace that surpasses all understanding. So can I just say this real quick? Um, You don't find comfort and solace in bluebell ice cream. You don't find it in your comforting, uh, in your counseling appointment or a psychiatrist or a really good book with a bunch of next steps. The scripture tells us that for humanity to find comfort, you must lower yourself to the point of a beggar, understand that you're a sinner, wretched, poor, that you're a peasant, 
and then you'll receive the words that Jesus said. Many will be what? That are first shall be last, but many will be last shall be first. And you should find comfort and solace and hope because blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Got it? Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that you are both holy and just and yet loving. And God, we know that we're, we're losers without you. At the end of the day, we are beggars. And in our beggarly state, we realize that we are nothing because we are nothing, we deserve nothing. Lord, ultimately, all we really deserve is to be punished because of our sin problem. But because we're sinners, Lord, you have paved a way through your goodness and your excellencies that through your son, all the ways we didn't measure up, Jesus did. He was perfect in every way. He never sinned. He made himself available on the cross of Calvary. All was punished. All was made right that anyone who would look to him, John 3, high and lifted up, would be saved. And so God, we look to your son knowing that we are sick and we need a physician. And we know that the physician comes and comfort is received because of what we do with him. And so God, would you help us to trust him? Would you help us to wrestle over our sin problem? And may it bring us to tears and an utter conviction in our life because we've missed the mark. And then may we find comfort in you. In Jesus' name, amen.